Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 248 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to open up today's show with a quote from musician Jana Stanfield. I cannot do all the good that the world needs, but the world needs all the good that I can do. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're well. Before we start today's show... I have some questions to ask you. Have you got a big message to share with the world? Do you want to step into the thought leader space in your field in 2023? Will the changes ahead in your company next year require you to win the hearts of your employees? Or do you want to take advantage of the huge opportunity speaking one-to-many offers you to grow your brand and business in the next 12 months. If any of these resonate with you, then I want to invite you to check out my Nail Your Signature Talk in 60 Days program. There is a new cohort starting in the group coaching version with me in the middle of January 2023, and this may well be perfect for you. Alternatively, If you prefer to go completely at your own pace, then there's a self-paced version, which you can start right away. Or there are very limited places, but you could also do the program with me one-to-one. And you can find out about the program and how you can get yourself ready to rock 2023 as a speaker over at saraharcher.co.uk slash nail your talk. And talking of people who've stepped into the thought leader role, that brings me to my guest on this show, Marcus Hemsley. Marcus is the founder and director at one of the world's best marketing agencies. He's an expert in results-led marketing and his company was recognised by Google as the best in growing companies online. That's a pretty good accolade. Now, as you'd expect, as the founder of one of the most successful digital agencies, when Marcus speaks about marketing, he is not short of an audience. But over the past few years, Marcus has been sharing about something else that he's passionate about. But it's a subject that comes up against more resistance than marketing. And that is the climate emergency. Marcus has co-founded a new movement as a response to the environmental issues and in order to be a good ancestor to his 877 descendants. And on this show, he's going to be sharing about that and the challenges he's faced in getting the message out there and how he's approached it. Well, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Marcus Hemsley. Happy to be here, Sarah. Thank you for having me. 
I'm really chuffed to have you on the show. Um, I really love what you're doing, both you know, business and uh, the extra thing that we're going to be talking about today. So yeah, thrilled to have you here. Now, I want to just get a sort of a bit of context here around your background and how you ended up, first of all, doing what you do in business today, if that's okay. Yeah, so I was a philosophy student, undergrad. I loved it because it helped me think, but it also gave me lots of spare time when I should have been reading uh, to go out and decide what sort of business I wanted to do. I think from a young age, I always wanted to do my own thing. I didn't like the idea perhaps of joining a big corporate. I quite like the idea of just doing my own projects. Wasn't sure what to do. So I went to lots of personal development seminars. And one I went to in, I think, 2006. So going back a little while now, it's called the World Internet Summit. And it was talking about internet marketing. We call it digital now, but it was called internet marketing. And I met people who were amazing copywriters, people running Google ads, Facebook ads. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, this is the future. And interestingly enough, the first sort of campaigns I did was for my lecturer, who was a philosophy lecturer. And he was running to be uh, MEP for the East of England for the Green Party, a guy called Dr. Rupert Reed. And I said, Rupert, look, I'd love to help out your campaigns. And he said, OK, well, what's your skill set? And I said, I've been playing around with Google ads and Facebook ads, and I think I could do that for the Green Party. And he came back the next week and said he'd found a budget of £40,000 media spend, which was you know, <laughs> amazing. That was, all for the, that was all for Google and Facebook, none of it for me. I was doing it voluntarily, of course. Uh, so I, I really got stuck into it. And I was running, back in those days, you could do a thing. There, was no, there, was a, there wasn't a thing called quality score on Google. So you could actually bid on any word you wanted. So the challenge is, Sarah, you've got to think, right, where are sort of centre-left voters yeah, what are they putting into Google? And I thought, well, they're probably reading The Guardian and The Independent. So I'd run Google ads for the word Guardian saying, Labour voter question mark, here's why you should never vote Labour again. So I stole lots of traffic from there. And then that went to, for example, a video of the comedian Mark Thomas, I don't know if you know him, but he was yes. writing The Guardian of the time with Rupert, my lecturer, saying, here's why you shouldn't vote for new Labour, because that was still a thing back then, and why you should vote Green. So that's how I started off, was doing the political campaigning on Google ads mm-hmm. and Facebook ads with an environmental slant. So that was my, wow. my beginnings. Um, yeah. Brilliant. And did did it did it work? So yeah, for Rupert, gosh, that was brilliant, but also heartbreaking. So we had a target to get in the east of England 140,000 voters. So we thought, right, you know, with the with the proportional representation, the way that, that those elections worked, we thought if we get that, we'll get the final seat. And the Greens got 60,000 in the previous European election. And we ended up getting 141,000. But because there was a higher turnout, UKIP got the last seat. So oh, no. it was bittersweet. We hit our target, but didn't get the outcome that we wanted, which was quite disappointing. But it was an incredible education whilst I was still you know, an, an undergraduate. I also got to write the copy for the, the free post. So it was a political parties have sort of one shot often to send one leaflet to every house in a region. So I wrote some copy, which I think got went to about 2.3 million houses. There's a lot, a lot of pressure. I think I wrote the headline, is this the 2009 you'd hoped for? Which <laughs> was quite a good one. And then it went on talking about the mess of the world and perhaps, you know, vote for someone different this time, try the Green Party. So that was how it all started, Sarah. Brilliant. And so you sort of fell in love with internet marketing and 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 then yes. from there sort of... Yes, so graduated 2008 and... Yeah, there wasn't many jobs going at all for graduates with a 2-1 in philosophy. So I started doing what I was doing for the Green Party freelance. 
but we were a sort of an idea of look if i don't get your return on investment don't pay me and i think for me that was quite important sort of just be transparent and say hey look i'm a kid i've just graduated i'm passionate about what i do and figuring out the best solutions so as we set up the agency so me and my other half set it up she was she was an actress and um, part-time, but also working in a recruitment agency as the marketing manager. I think she would prefer to be doing more acting at the time, but that's fine. And she had this dreadful boss. I won't say the name of the recruitment agency, but she used to come home crying a lot. And I just said, Rebecca, that's it. I've had enough. Like, we're, you're going to quit and we're going to set up a, a company where no one ever goes home crying, where clients get really good results. And then we, we aim to have clients that are doing good things in the world uh, to, on the more ethical side of things and that was that was how fountain started with a couple of friends who were also working at that recruitment agency called rob and laura rob was the the top recruitment consultant at the time and laura was rebecca's assistant and that they were a couple as well they quit to go traveling around 2009 because the economy wasn't in a good place and when they came back we said look why don't you come and join me and rebecca and we'll try and get this this idea of this agency off the ground and you know, one that's based on forecasting transparency and then focusing on return on investment by looking at it from a, a more logical perspective you know we're not just going to send traffic to a website we're also going to look at getting more people that come to the website to take action and then if they become a, a lead you know help the sales team close that at a higher percentage or once they become a customer buy more you know and when you do what's called full funnel optimization you optimize each stage of it you get that compounding growth. I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners are in business, but really there's any, there's any three ways to grow a business. You can get more, more, more leads, increase sales conversion rates, or get more from your existing customers. And the fastest growing businesses do all three. So it has a compounding impact. They have a feedback loop in it that gets a higher quality and quantity of leads, a higher sales conversion rate, and then a higher upsell, cross-sell referral rate from customers. If you do all three of those, that's how you get the, the exponential growth, which is what we do. So minimize risk upfront by forecasting and then maximize return on investment by doing those three. And that's, that's um, and, and the business has gone really well, hasn't it? I know Google um, awarded you guys it's the best growth of online yes, businesses. They did. So that, that, that's, that's an interesting story. So we, we've won a couple of Google awards. We won the first ones in 2016, which is quite nice. So Google have their, their sets of agencies that they call their premier partners and they started doing premier partner awards in 2016 and we won best search performance agency there. Um, but then the next year was the exciting one because we went in for the Growing Businesses Online Award and we won it in EMEA, so Europe, Middle East and Africa. And then we got flown out to New York for the, for the final and won best in the world for growing businesses online. And really that our secret source compared to the hundreds actually it was i think it was 1100 other agencies that entered it was what i just told the listeners it was yeah. the, the full funnel it was focusing on gains at each stage of the sales and marketing funnel rather than just focusing on one area which i think a lot of the other agencies were doing they were just running google ads to a web page and doing that well i'm sure to mm -hmm. sort of you know have a good case study and some good numbers but if they're not focusing on getting the website converting higher or the sales team converting higher or so on you won't get the compound effect that we had and we we had some great case studies as well we helped some some really good startups sort of scale and exit there was one which was a company called you move an estate agency franchise we took them from five branches to 90 in two years and they wow. sold uh, yeah, to Barton and Co. PLC for uh, I think 15 million and it's quite cool to take these sort of entrepreneurs that you know have a dream have a great 
offering and help them actually get out there and then either exit or get the business to a much bigger and more exciting place so those case studies combined with you know our approach google seems to like and yeah that, that, that was great for us so we fast forward to today there's 51 of us now so you know offices both here in in, in sunny norwich um in the uk but also a small one in the us for the uh for the american clients fantastic i mean that's the, that just just the sort of talk on that point because I think this is this is a big point I know we're, we're not here necessarily to talk about this but people always focus on conversions in the first 30 days but you know it often takes 90 or longer and people forget about that sort of you know that that long longer term relationship so I think you know what you're talking about is 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 actually absolutely true it's about not just the first ones it's the ones you know keeping that relationship and then you know staying present so really good it's interesting because I would have thought, this is just my assumption, which may be completely wrong, you know, very focused on results, marketing with results. And there's, I know from my own experience, limited though it is, marketing is all about test and tweak and Mm. data and analysis. And, you know, you talked about things like forecasting and all that good stuff. And you did a philosophy degree. And those two things, there seems to be like, there's not, it wouldn't be a natural sort of shift. So I was curious about that. I th- I mean, not directly, but yes, indirectly. Like philosophy taught me to think and it taught me to think clearly. And what you're actually concerned about is getting to the truth. So actually, it's it's funny, the two areas where I've, I've worked in, because as, as a side note, I also ran to be a, a county councillor for the Green Party and had four years there as a, as a oh. young county councillor. But both of them, I came in with just caring about what the truth was and trying to get there. So sort of bringing in transparency into two sectors where... There is often a lot of smoke and mirrors, especially in politics, but also to an extent marketing as well. So I, I, I see actually being able to just go, look, what's the truth here? Like pull back, work from first principles and say, look, what does success look like? What are we trying to achieve? And then trying to find out also what's going on in the minds of the, of the target audience and the customers. The closer you get to understanding what's really going on for them, both what they need when they need to buy something, but also when they're going through your sales and marketing funnel, the closer you get to understanding that, the closer you are to then tweaking in an effective way, not just tweaking because you're not exactly sure what's not working. So it's funny, Rob, uh, my co-founder, also has a, has a degree in philosophy as well. We actually employ a lot of philosophy graduates. So there is something about thinking clearly. And there are schools of philosophy that's useful in marketing. Stoicism is probably one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at a meeting with a, a chief revenue officer this morning who's a big existentialist as well. So there is, I think there are some links, but more perhaps indirect to your point, but they're not, it's not a direct um, process. But yeah, there are people that did philosophy also end up staying in academia as well because that's where they felt comfortable so I love that so the golden thread that that sort of bridges both aspects is that that truth and and transparency yeah brilliant cool okay good now that was that's where you are in business today but something else and I think you've already sort of shown how close to your heart it is by um, referencing the Green Party and from standing as the Green Green Party uh, councillor was is the is the environment and looking after our planet when was the first time you really felt compelled to do something about the climate emergency and why what made what what caused that i think that the big thing for me was a moment when i was at the university of east anglia so for those of you who don't know it's got one of the leading climatology and environmental science departments in the world there was a bit of 
there was controversy in 2009 when they got hacked before one of the COP, I think it was COP15, they got hacked by you know fossil fuel companies or whoever, and they said, oh, the data's not correct, and they've been hiding stuff. And it wasn't true, actually, it was investigated, and no, they're, they're there. But one of my friends, good friends, she, when we are both undergrads, she was studying ecology and environmental science, and she kind of just came out one of the lectures and you know, went for a coffee, and she looked a bit shaken. I said, Are you okay? And she goes, No, not really. I've decided I'm not going to have children. I said, Why? And she goes, The planet's, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but you know, uh, yeah, the, the planet's screwed, a different word. But yeah, she just said, I, I don't, I think there's a high probability that my children, if not my children, my grandchildren are going to live short and painful lives. And that really struck me. Because she's, again, with that, putting our truth cap on, she's closer to the data than I was, and she's worried. And she's done a 360 and gone, no, I don't want children. I don't think it's, I don't think I can bring a child into this world that I think has got a high probability of civil unrest, societal breakdown, not being habitable in 80, 100 years. That got me really thinking. And then, obviously, my lecturer, who I mentioned, Dr. Rupert Reed, you know, he's still very vocal. He was the spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. Uh, he's since left them and set up more of a moderate flank sort of operation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, do it, it, there were moments where we were studying, you know, the philosophy of, you know, environmental science and philosophy of science and looking at it from more of a sort of, you know, how do we solve this from a more philosophical problem solving basis? And then across the road you've got the you know the science departments i remember looking out the window seeing the scientists sort of you know studying the climate and us as sort of so there was there was all of that really and then i think it probably was rupert that got me into the green party i think at the time i was probably i, I liked new labor until they until blair invaded iraq and i thought that was wrong and unethical said so i thought oh, i'm just going to join the lib dems then be sort of you know swear you know sort of in the middle of the road if you like uh, and then i came across the greens their, their 2005 manifesto at least i thought was the lib dems plus the environment so i thought great let's jump on board um and, and that was it really those were the moments that i think yeah, you've just got to do something mm. uh it's, it's a tricky one if i'm being brutally honest there was a a wake-up call that i had i'll tell this story because it's quite emotional for me there was a moment I think I was a Green Party councillor from 2009 to 2013. I stood down, my seat stayed green, but I wanted to focus on Fountain. And there's sort of the, the time in the mid-20-teens where I was just focusing on growing Fountain. We're winning Google Awards. And obviously, we prefer to have renewable energy clients and people doing good things. But you know, we took on a company. I won't say their name, but they were a sports car company, quite a famous one. And there was a moment, I think, about four or five years ago where... I was helping the team and we're doing a sort of a half day workshop with them about how they could really sell more sports cars from just getting their website converting, getting more test drives. And there's an expression, an American expression I always like, but it captured what I was doing, where at the end of like the workshop in the morning, I'd like left it all out on the field. You know, I'd given so much energy. I felt oh, I'm exhausted. But I felt I've really given all my creative energy and focus to helping sell more sports cars. So I went out for lunch. I was walking through the city centre of Norwich and I saw, I get emotional saying this now, um, the children striking for the planet, the children's school strike. I just burst into tears and I thought, what on earth are you doing, Marcus? You're using all your gifts, all your knowledge, everything, you, you know, all your creativity to help sell more sports cars that's going to dump more CO2 in the atmosphere. And I thought, that's it, we're done. We, we got rid of the sports car company and since then it's been really careful of who we take on. And then we began the journey of going, right, we're going to race to net zero and what more can we do? Um, which obviously led me to eventually mm-hmm. coming up with the idea of the Million Tree Pledge. I don't know if that's 
preemptive. Yeah, absolutely. What year was that with the sports car company? Oh, I think that would have been maybe 2018, I think. It, would have, it, it wouldn't have been, or oh, 2017. It was around the time the school strikes first started. So I, I, it would have been one of those two years. 2019 is too late. So yeah, around that sort of time, I think. There was a hiatus of me with environmentalism, not in a terrible way. Like I always, you know, I tried not to fly. I, I went plant-based. I drove a hybrid. Like I wasn't, I, I wasn't buying sports cars and, you know, eating steak or anything. But... I just had that moment of going, no, like you, you need to be all in on this. This isn't just something that's a nice to do. Like the plan, the planet's on fire. What are you doing about it? And these children are striking for the future. Why aren't you? Yeah, cool. And I, I mean, I don't know. I, I always like to think what my audience is thinking. And I wonder, just backtracking, did your friend ever have children? Did she change her mind? Do you know? No, she did. She did. She's recently had two children, um, which is is good in, yeah. for her. I think. I I, I, I look. I, I don't. I, I don't know exactly. I, I never challenged her on that because I thought it's, it's you know no, she's I mean, years ago. But she did. She did actually have children in the end. But I do have friends who have taken that decision and kept to it. Who are in the yeah. environmental movement. Um, I don't know if they want me naming them on this podcast. No, no, I, no. But it's, I'm I just just curious. Yeah. But I think there is a chance still that you know it's not. It's not all over. No, and I think perhaps that's the point. I'm not on here being a doomsayer, but I. But there are people who are, who are scared enough to perhaps think I don't want to have children because of the risk. And also, there's you know, people who really take it very seriously. Look at the carbon impact mm-hmm. of lots of children as well. There's that side yeah. of it too. Why should they? No, I. I think there's a. I think there's going to be a lot of turmoil. I think that. I think. The thing that a lot of people who are completely, I guess, the doomsayers don't take into account is that we have got time to innovate. I think that there's a high probability that a large part of the later part of the century, when we do finally get our act together and there's consensus, there's a serious problem, will be using machines to draw down as much carbon as possible. You know, it's not just going to be about planting trees. It's going to be about, quite to be on a very simple level, going back to first principles, we've dumped Mm. two and a half trillion tons of co2 equivalents into the atmosphere that needs to come back down the parts per million of co2 that are you know whatever they are a minute about 450 parts per million need to come back down to about 230 it's it's quite straightforward just just put it back to how it was you know the the sort of things i say to my eight-year-old son is you know clean up your room but he might say to me well dad you know you and your you and the adults need to uh stop polluting take the pollution back out the atmosphere and put the trees back (laughs) you know Yeah, but yeah. we found the nest you know for them so we need yeah. to clean it up quite frankly and i imagine that's what we're going to spend most of this century doing um so that's that's my hope that we will do it um and i love the way i watched your tedx where you were talking about and i think to, it's really important to put this into context for people because i think people don't understand so i'm working with a, a circular economy expert at the moment and mm. and net zero is literally just not putting any more water in the bath like the, yeah. that kind of that's the way she sort of explained it to me and then yeah. and then the other the other part of it which is what you know what you were talking about in in the TEDx is drawing down this CO2 from the atmosphere and I think I I think you know you, you gave three stats and I think you know to put it into context it was something like I can't remember how many trillion but it yeah. would take was it 31,000 years? Well, it was something ridiculous to take all this stuff down and sort of, and getting people to see it as sort of, if, you, if you'd if you thrown rubbish all over your like, city, 
and yeah. you just stop throwing rubbish around the city you've still got all that rubbish to get rid of but I get, how how i can't remember the stat you probably yeah no, I, so the rubbish thing is is this uh, so the big thing i'm passionate about is taking ownership for our lifetime emissions right so we've all polluted all of us right so we need to take that back down. We need to clean up our own mess. The analogy is like me saying, like, hey, Sarah, you know, I, I'm committed to uh, net not fly tipping. So, you know, only fly tipping 10% of what I do now and some, then paying someone else to pick it up for me. Um, by 2050, aren't I great? And you're like, well, Marcus, you've been fly tipping for 40 years. You know, what about all that rubbish that's sitting around your town? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, well, that's not, so it's not an adequate answer to say that we're getting to net zero and that's fine and so we need to we need to find ways of drawing down it and i think that's what i encourage com larger companies to do rather than saying like hey we're brilliant we're going to race to net zero it's like well what about all of the because we need we need to put it back to get that balance back in i think that's the myth well not the myth but the fact that a lot of people aren't aware of they think with the climate with the narrative, current narrative of the climate crisis we get to net zero and then it's fine, we'll stop at 1.5 degrees and it will level out. But that's just, that will only happen if we actually start taking stuff out of the atmosphere. And the recent IPCC reports have been saying that for the first time, oh, we need to do some drawdown. Uh, but it's it's very simple. The, the thing I, I mentioned about the the trillions is, is that, that, that that's also about planting trees. So we've lost mm. three trillion trees, which is half of all the trees on the planet, more or less the estimate, which is just gobsmacking when you think about it. So we need to we need to try and put as many of those back as possible. I think current estimates say we can do about 1.2 trillion because obviously we've built on some of the land, etc. Uh, so we just need a plan to do that. Um, but the analogy I give is uh, the way to visualize a trillion versus a million and a billion is through time, right? So we we can do the experiment now for your listeners, uh, thought experiment. So if you and I, Sarah, were going to count to a million and every second is another number, how long will it take for us to count to a million, do you think? Well, I know the answer to this one. I think it was yeah. four days. Is that right? No, no it's, it's, it's 11 days. Sorry, so. 11 days. Sorry, yeah. You know what, but most people, I imagine most listeners are probably, an idea was popping in their head of a number. If you don't try and calculate it, of course. And some people say a million like <laughs> days. Some people say, like, you know, 20 years. Like No one's really got a true handle on it. But the thing, so you've got like 11 days, which is a million. But a billion, here's the fascinating thing. For me and you to count to a billion, that would take 31 years. Which obviously means a trillion, to count to a trillion, is 31,000 years. That was it, yeah. It was That's huge. the difference. This is my, so when I took the million tree pledge, when I pledged that I was, Marcus Hemsley was going to plant a million trees, and I did the, I did the maths. So I was like, oh, that isn't particularly good, is it? That's my it's 11 days versus a... 93 because we're timesing it's three trillion 93,000 years versus a million days so you know so then i thought i need to find other people to start pledging to plant a million trees as well so that's a great segue so into into the million tree pledge and talking about it so you got to the point where fountain said right no more polluted customers who aren't committed not green you know we're, we're going to steer away from those and in fact we're actually going to you know make sure that we as a business contribute to stopping and drawing down yes and then you had the idea and then how did that then become the, the million tree pledge tell me about yeah. that no, yeah so it wasn't as direct as that it was more indirect so first thing was let's race to net zero and work out our scope one two and three emissions and we're doing that 
And actually, the, where the military pledge came from, it just it was an insight that came to me when I was really sick with long COVID, actually. So I got COVID, nasty case of it in March 2020. And again, another horror story, really. I, I was really struggling. I, some people had this with shortness of breath. And I was really struggling to breathe. And I couldn't even speak. I was, so I rung the paramedics. And they said, well, listen, lots of people are calling us out at the minute. Um, can you hobble over to the bathroom mirror and tell us if your lips are turning blue? Gosh, I hobble over, like <laughs> struggling to sort of really say anything. Like, are they blue? I said, no. They said, we're not going to send anyone. I was like, whoa. They said, look, if they, if they turn blue, give us a call. But I live out in the countryside in rural Norfolk. So I was thinking, well, this is it. If the time my lips are blue, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm probably dead. So I thought, I need something to distract me. And they always say, when you go for a tough time, take it one day at a time. But when you're really in pain, it's take it one minute at a time. So I thought, I remember looking out the window and thinking, what's happening? You know, like, I can't breathe. The planet can't breathe. Like, this is absurd. And I'd recently signed up to the ecology.com platform where you can plant trees and have an account and highly recommend it to anyone, really. It's like a Netflix subscription for the planet. And I thought, I know what I'm going to do to distract myself. Every time I get shortness of breath, I'm going to plant 10 trees and just try and do some good in this sort of horrible, scary, painful moment. And then that's when I started thinking, oh, why don't I set a goal that by the time I'm 40, I've planted a million trees? So there's me lying in bed. And then I then I started Googling and researching how many trees have lost. Because like, oh, a million sounds like I'm really going to you know, do my bit. And then I thought, oh, gosh, that's nothing. So then, then I did go to the border fountain, not, not in person, because I was in bed struggling with COVID. So I sort of got, you know, on a Zoom call. So I said, right, we're going to plant a million trees. And I'm like, okay, how does that cost? And at the time, it was about 120 grand. And they were like, um, that's quite a bit. And I said, well, yes, but let, let's spread it over five years. And, you know, so I thought, right, I've got, I've taken the pledge personally, Marcus Hemsley, and Fountain has. So now I just, just need to find a, a, a million more pledges and we'll get to our, 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 our first trillion trees and let's crack on with it. So and then I Googled and I saw that the World Economic Forum had put a shout out to entrepreneurs and businesses and leaders. It's called One Tea.org to plant a trillion trees and or protect them by 2030. So this is brilliant. So we can just sort of like, you know, we can do a little bit for that. But I, but I, I, I spoke to Dennis at Ecology and said, look, you know, here's what I'm doing. You know, here's what I'm thinking. He said, you know what, there's some other companies that had the same idea. So he put us all on a Zoom call. And that was early last year, 2021. And the Million Tree Pledge was born. And it's a very simple concept. You pledge to plant a million trees by a set date. And then you find at least two other pledges to take it as well. So it grows exponentially. And I quite like that because we didn't really have any budget or much time. So we <laughs> we just try and spread by word of mouth the only caveat is we don't really allow any green washes so we need to see that you are committed to net zero by a good target and need to plant at least ten thousand trees to get the ball rolling you can't just be someone who signs up and you know keeps on polluting business as usual so and it's good and i think we're at i think 85 pledges now which is great uh we've planted i think almost 10 million trees in the last year and a half between us so we've and it does vary like we've had some pledges who are brilliant like crystal hosting they're wonderful they did their million trees in six months you know signing from there is committed to getting renewable hosting out there for everyone and then using all the profits to just plant trees and he's he's personally taken a billion tree pledge which is amazing and very inspiring so 
I think there's there's some incredible people that are part of this group and also you came to our, our get together in Brighton in a nature reserve uh, in October this year and it's just it's a sort of something quite special so we're yeah we're really excited so if anyone listening if they know anyone who is interested in taking bold action on climate and drawing way down more than their carbon emissions more than their lifetime emissions even uh, yeah get in touch really we'll put a link in the in the show notes as well could you just because a lot of people i hear this word a lot i think i know what it means it may be that others don't greenwashing mm. could you just explain what what that is yeah so my i mean i, I don't know if this is the oxford dictionary definition but again i won't name and shame particular companies but there are some so there's a particular fem- premier league football club that a couple of years ago flew out a team of people to where their star striker grew up a small village somewhere and planted 26 trees for every goal he scored but of course the carbon to do that you know with the, with the flying was worse than the trees itself and that was their they're sort of like we're being green this year we've planted 26 trees and that's absurd you know that doesn't make any doesn't make any difference you know there are large corporates that have taken the million tree pledge not ours but they've done their own like we've, we've planted a forest of a million trees but that works out at about you know 10 trees per employee whereas we have for example uh create you know uh, Beck kimber you know they're a brighton-based uh, sort of web design company they, they've they've done they've taken the million tree pledge they've got 10 employees they're doing a hundred thousand trees per employee so i think it's just this sort of virtual signaling of like aren't we being green but doing the bare minimum you know the mm-hmm. the big corporate high shard name they spent loads of money on this flashy website for their forest and sent loads of people out and i thought like all that money they've spent on pring it is significantly more than what they've actually done for the planet and they don't have a net zero target yet and it's just there's just a bit of a joke really the opposite side of it is the other side of the coin that people are talking about now which is interesting is a thing called green hushing so people who are doing amazingly big things aren't that forthcoming you know like you take i'll, I'll shout them out because i think they're brilliant whole grain digital you know those guys they're, they're my they're my green heroes they do so many incredible things and they i mean they do shout about it but i think people, more people need to shout about them more you know yeah. and you just think like that's that's what we need is just more spotlights but the media are to blame i mean they've they've been a bit rubbish at picking up the million tree pledge and they run some absurd story about i don't know zach efron with his latest netflix show talking about you know the planet but there's nothing there's no substance you know and, yeah. Or they'd happily cover, you know, that that the you know, Premier League football club that plants 14 trees for a, a striker or something, but they won't do a lot a bunch of SMEs around the UK and Europe who are taking massive action and spending a, a you know two or three percent of their revenue in you know, reforestation. Yeah. So I think there there needs to be a, a shift in that. But no, I think the other thing to be careful of with greenwashing for your listeners as well as people talking about being carbon neutral versus net zero. Carbon neutral is, is, is not a good thing, really. It's better than nothing. But basically, it's saying we're going to carry on as business as usual. We'll keep polluting, but we'll just you know plant some trees and offset and buy some carbon credits to pay other people not to pollute. And then, you know, it balances out. So it's neutral, but it's, it's a bit stupid, really. Uh, what you want is someone saying net zero. So we've measured our scope one, two and three emissions. And we've got a plan to get to as close to zero as possible. 
and then the bits that is left will then plant trees, buy carbon credits, etc. And in an ideal world, they'll go beyond that and get into sort of negative territory. And those are the people you want to, you know, you want to look at and go, they're doing a good job. And they're doing it, they're science-based targets, and they're doing it well within sort of the parameters where we need to be, i.e. halving global emissions by 2030, which sadly, we're going in the wrong direction, and there's only seven years left. Yeah, it is, it is uh, scary. But, you know, the more awareness we can bring to it, um, the better, which leads me on to my next question. Now, this is the speaking club. And mm -hmm. I imagine I know you speak and I imagine that you speak on both topics on the marketing side and on the environmental side. Is there any difference in the way that you approach putting a talk together about those two things, given the landscape of each? Not really. No, I think, I mean, you know, this, Sarah, we're, we're dealing with humans at the end of the day and we're, we're, we're a sucker for a story, aren't we? And emotions and dopamine blasts. So no, it's, it's the same thing. It's, you know, I want a really good opening. I want to tell lots of stories. I want to uh, take people on an emotional journey. Uh, that, that, that's all the same. I want them to walk away with a clear call to action or a clear message that they can then repeat to other people. So not really. I think the, the only way it would differ slightly is I will start imagining avatars of who's in the audience or who's the viewer or listener and say, well, you know, if they're a marketing manager, what are their pain points? Well, mm. you know, they want to clear it. They want to be able to demonstrate clear return on investment. They also want some nuggets to walk away so they look good at their jobs and you know, <laughs> they want their lives to be a bit easier. So there's some good software that can help them. Um, whereas the climate change figure is more of a challenge, I guess, in that respect, because again, like to your point in this conversation, you don't want to push people into sort of you know spiral of doom and oh there's nothing we can do and you know there is always stuff we can do so but you also want that one is actually more challenging how do how do we get that balance between saying here's the reality and it really isn't good news guys um but we also need to inspire you to take action not sort of fall into a place of hopelessness as and that's yeah there's great fables i've used like the one that actually I forget her name, that young Iranian, American Iranian woman. She's brilliant. She's 20. She's a brilliant public speaker. And she spoke at COP recently. And she spoke about the, the African fable of the hummingbird. Do you know that one? Uh, yes. Someone at the at the meetup told me about this. But yeah, please do share. I'll, I'll share. I mean, it's, it's a very simple one. It's just an African fable about there's a massive forest fire, all the animals are sort of running away and despairing. And then this little hummingbird starts going into the, the river with its tiny little beak of water and flying over and dropping it. And the other animals turn to it and say, well, what on earth are you doing? Go away. And they were like, well, no, because actually I, 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 you know, I can inspire action. And if all of us start doing that, our little bit, we can do it. And then I think the fable goes on that that hummingbird inspires hundreds of other hummingbirds all coming together with their little tiny beaks full of water. But a swarm of hummingbirds over the forest fire put it out. But it wasn't that one person where everyone was running away from the fire and it just looked absolutely helpless, didn't say, I'm going to do my tiny bit and just keep doing it. And, you you know, what, what are you guys going to do about it? it? It inspires lovely action. So I think stories like that, if you can leave people with hope in the darkness that way, I, I think that's the way forward. But it's it's tricky because people in the Green Movement debate and say, well, you're not, you're not levelling with people, you're not telling them the truth. Um, but it's it's a tough one. I think... I think the truth is we all need to just take ownership for what we're doing. And that is, and there will be some difficult, I'd love to just be idealistic and say, yeah, you know, just 
what some of the stupid ministers say at the minute Tory ministers oh I focus on recycling and that's it but we just have to like for me it's, it's a checklist so I'm going fully EV this next month I'm getting my fully electric car for my hybrid I've got my solar panels being installed in January I've got air source heat pumps I've had for a few years now 100% renewable energy supplier I don't fly I'm plant-based like all these sort of things and of course, you know, I remember saying to a dear friend of mine about me not flying and doing slow travel. And she goes, yeah, but my parents live in America. And I said, well, then I'm not flying for you. You know, like, because of course you have to see your parents. Like, I'm not some, you know, militant dragon about this. But I don't have all my family are in England. I have no reason to fly. I went to a wedding in September in Stockholm and I got the train and I used an incredible slow travel agents called Byway Travel. And they were just wonderful. But again... I also, have, you know, I'm in a position where I can afford to do some of these things. And again, that's where I think government should step in. That I, I, I think if we're being serious, we need to somehow, and it's a bit harder now after the Kamikaze budget, raise some money to get armies of people insulating everyone's houses, putting in forms of air source heating or electric you know, boilers, uh, getting PVs, you know, really subsidising electric vehicles and actually moving us off, make it really easy for people. But then the choices they need to make are things of, could I eat less meat? and Or could I just try veganuary and see if it's okay? You know, mm -hmm. could I reduce flying? Could I look? And so th there is going to be some form of sacrifice in the short run. I mean, the challenge I have is I know about marketing is that a lot of people will move when something's superior, right? I mean, people give up meat if the alternatives taste better and they're cheaper. They'll go to electric car and Tesla are, are making moves to that. Um, you know, I'm not particularly impressed with how Musk is doing on Twitter, but Tesla themselves, you know, I've, 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 I've gone over to, to them because I was thinking, well, they're the only car manufacturer that's bothering to put up lots of supercharging points. That's, you know, only a hundred percent electric. You know, even people like Polestar are still owned by Volvo. So it just, you know, you want to try and get, with the people that are just all in on this. So we do have to make some sacrifices, um, but I think it's just balancing them out and just being kind within all of it. Yeah, my friend whose parents in America, of course, go and see your parents and fly, like, of course. But then if you're going to do that, join Ecology and buy some extra trees and do some you know, forms of offsetting. And it's better than nothing, but we all just need to kind of go, like with businesses, our, our scope one, two, and three emissions. Shall I, shall I explain those to people? Because I said it a couple of times. And I thought, yeah. Okay, so let me give an analogy of uh, I can use my this business here, right? So so scope one is what you what you burn on site. So you know, I'll flip it, I'll give it, I'll talk about it with your house, Sarah. So let's say, you know, and I won't pick on you in case you do, but in your house, the things you burn on site, you may have a gas boiler. So you're burning carbon emissions on your site. So that needs to go at some point. You can't keep burning, you know and polluting uh, you also may have cars cars still count as scope one because they sit on your so you know, do, so those cars need to be fully electric as well so that's scope one is what you burn on in, in your on your site scope two is what someone else burns carbon like for for your energy so you can change scope two immediately by just switching to a renewable energy supplier someone like for example ecotricity i, I love those guys or the good energy and you know like someone who's really committed to that and you're, the profits are being reinvested into more renewable energy. Great. But then scope free is the biggest one because scope free is everything else you spend money on, right? So from the food I buy to the clothes I buy, all of that has a carbon footprint. So the way businesses deal with that is we've, we, we're actually uh, modeling or using Ecology Zero. So Ecology Zero plugs into our accountancy zero package 
and then looks at all of the things we spent money on and tells us the carbon footprint of them. So now we can go, okay, here's here's our here's our scope free that the, the, the fountain spent all its money on. I don't know if there's a consumer version of that. There's a company called Geeky Zero that might be doing it, but I think as consumers, I need to be able to know like a really simple way of going, what's my carbon footprint um, based on everything I buy? But it just it basically means to buy a bit less and the things we do buy, we need to just, you know, look at secondhand, reusing, et cetera. Um, but that's what we need to do is, but the best thing people can do is scope one and two, right? So, you know, stop burning stuff on your house. So get rid of, change your boiler if you can and get an electric car. Scope two, switch to renewable energy supplier and then scope three, look at what you're spending your money on. But the interesting thing about the way businesses are doing that is, you know, I'm someone else's scope free, Fountain is someone else's scope free. So actually, as we're working with bigger companies, they're saying, can we see your net zero plans, please? Because they need to then funnel up the chain. So everyone's going to be forcing each other to do it soon. So that's great from a business perspective. But it's just getting consumers into that. But it's hard work. You know, you have to make a list of things and make a plan to get them. Like I've wanted solar panels for about three or four years. And I've saved up and, you know, planned it. And now I'm getting them. That's great. But, you know, it takes time. So I think we just need to spend this decade thinking about that. Because going back to my TED talk, this decade and probably the decade after will literally determine whether billions of unborn people over the next couple of centuries live on a habitable planet or not. Like we've never held so much power in our hands as human beings that are alive today. You know, it's the thing that Barack Obama says that is a beautiful quote. I think it's humans are the, this generation is the first generation to feel the effects of climate change and the last generation that can do anything about it. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's profound, isn't it? That's Obama for you. <laughs> yeah, that's all really, really made it simple for people to understand i think that we we all can make a difference and even if even if we you know not quite able to implement some of those things yet being committed to starting the journey is the important thing you know take as much action as you can but like you said plan to do those things i've got a gas boiler so I, I will be looking at that. But another thing, I think um, I had Graham Hill on the show who um, has a, a thing called Carbonauts as well. And if you want to be able to sort of mm. look at, you know, that number three that group of things, then they have a great program. And I think it's very low cost Brilliant. on notes. They will want everyone to do it so that you can calculate those things as well. So I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes as well. So you can have a listen to what Graham said. Smashing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I have a few standard questions that I ask all guests, if that's okay. Of course. The first one is, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Oh, gosh. I think it's, it's helped me grow the business that we have today, really. It's helped me share, just share stories for people as well. So because it's not just about me and my business, it's also about the clients that I help get out there. And I think it's the other thing it's, it's helped me with is there are moments where you're put on the spot. And I haven't come across like a complete idiot since I've been practicing my public speaking and been a member of Toastmasters International. So I think, yeah, fewer embarrassing moments and more uh, storytelling that's helped impact clients and people in my network. Brilliant. And have you had a speaking gig where you're like, oh my goodness, I just wish I could forget that. Does that happen to you? Yes. Yeah, it does. Less so now. Although I went through a stage because I joined Toastmasters in 2010 because I was terrible at public speaking and I sort of went on, on this journey and I got 
this saying is that pride comes before the fall. Like I, I got, I got really good and uh, cocky is probably the right word. But I, I, I became a finalist because Toast, those who don't know, Toastmasters International has competitions, and I got through to the UK and Ireland final for the evaluation contest in 2015 and did really well and thought I'm really good. And I remember turning up to a presentation with uh, a prospective client and hadn't really done my prep and it went really badly and that haunted me you know because we still on the client so it wasn't that terrible but I, I had a moment where I had to stop and say look I need to reset myself I'm really sorry because I've got a few things muddled in my head which is a horrible thing to do in a presentation you know you know you think gosh and I, but then that allowed me to kind of get over the sort of the adrenaline that come up the mistake I made hadn't gone through my slides properly and I used to have this thing where I just see the slide at the corner of my eye and I would look at the audience engage them be talking about it and I got the slides the wrong way around so I was talking about the wrong slides um, <laughs> so I had to stop and go sorry and I got really nervous and said I'm actually quite nervous I just I don't normally get stage fright I've done for a long time I said look I had a moment they said no you can keep going I said no give me one minute I sort my slides out and I'll come back and I'll I'll do a better presentation but that was a horrible thing to do on stage so the presentations after that I really made sure that I always prepared in a huge like there's a guy called John Bates, who's a TED trainer from California, and he's got this thing called the Bates Equation for public speaking. Have you ever come across that one? You're nodding. I don't know if you... So what you do is you work out how many people are going to be in the room, say it's 100 people, and how long your speech is, so it's an hour keynote. So you times 100 by 60 minutes. So, yeah, and that's how many... How, like, you know, it's like, what's that, 6,000 or whatever? Like that, that, that's how many minutes of human life you're, you're responsible for. And you think that's quite a high amount. So then it, that moment makes me think, actually, it's not, I can't just go, oh, it's only a 20-minute talk. I'll just wing it. You think, well, if there's, you know, 200 people watching, and then if it's recorded, gosh, you know, there could be thousands of people watching it. So that, that every person's life is, is equal to yours. Their time is very valuable. So you need to make sure you're adding value to it. So I always run that equation in my head and go, oh, gosh, yeah, actually, that's a lot of human life that I'm taking out. And I want to make sure that it's, it's adding value and it's, it's helpful for them. Absolutely. Definitely. I think uh, it is an investment, you know, but if you make the investment of your energy, your time, money, if you need a coach, whatever, it does come back to you exponentially. And, you know, you, you, you've got to respect the audience. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, what's the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh, gosh, I've, I've got like top tens of books. So there's so many. There's one I was telling someone about this morning called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And if you come across that, it's a beautiful book on stoicism and the works of Marcus Aurelius. But it just that I've really turned to that in difficult times. And I always find a passage that helps me. I also I, I stoicism and Taoism have been really big for me, like the Tao Te Ching. Yeah, that's been really good. There's a coach called Michael Neal who wrote The Inside Out Revolution. And then there's a, so I'm giving you loads of books now. This is terrible. I'll give you two more. Uh, Essentialism by Greg McEwan and Slowing Down to the Speed of Life by Joseph Bailey. So those ones have really helped deal with difficult time, manage my time and just be less in my head and less stressed and more present and connected. Excellent. I'll, I'll put a link to those in the in the show notes. I was also, I, I think Ryan Holiday's other book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, is yeah. uh, is an interesting one from a marketing perspective very much so yeah that's that's an interesting one cool okay um uh, so where we speak so um what's the best bit of business advice you've had and why there's a brilliant quote from the book think and grow rich which is uh failure can't cope with persistence 
And actually, there's just that thing of we've been in business for 14 years now. I think the reason we've grown and we've been successful is we just didn't give up. We persisted. I remember saying to my co-founders, when times were tough, well, but the only way the only two things are going to happen is either successful or we're going to be on the streets begging for money because I'm not giving up, you know, until, until I'm or I'm dead, right? <laughs> you kind of like you basically say, you know, there's only two options really. And I think the best advice is consistency. Just keep learning, keep keep improving. Um, the learning piece is important. You know, if I was, if I was going to bring another bit of advice in, it's, it comes from Tony Robbins, who I mean, Tony Robbins is great and he's quoted a lot. I feel he gets people a bit pumped up and there can be burnout around Tony Robbins as well. So be careful. But the thing I got from doing his Unleash the Power within is he goes, there's three, three steps to, it's my Tony Robbins impression, there's three steps to achieving anything. And most people do the first two and they still fail. So the first one is have like huge audacious goals, like have those goals. And the second one is throw a thing at it. So be all in big, but most people do those and they, they still fail because they miss the third one which is find a mentor, a teacher, a guide, someone who's done exactly that before, whose past is your future, and then go and learn from them, get the blueprints. And that's probably the best bit of advice because anyone can set a goal and get excited and go all in. But for me, with Growing Fountain, for example, we have a couple of non-execs, uh, Spencer Gallagher and Peter Hall, who you know, uh, they run the group agency Nomics, but they had an agency, sold it, and have... They're the two of the best consultants in the country for helping agencies grow. So it's just so useful to speak to people who have done it before. And it's the same you were saying about public speaking is find a coach, find someone who's been there to help you. You know, you can have the goal of being a great public speaker. You can have all the energy, but unless you're learning from people who have walked that path, you'll never reach your potential with it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a nice segue into my final question, which is if you could choose one mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Barack Obama, it has to be. I, from a public speaking perspective, I, yeah, I, there's a book called Lend Me Your Ears, which talks about rhetorical devices. I forget the name of the, you probably know the, the author, but his, yeah, his ability for oratory, but also I, I read, or I listened to the audio book of his, like one of three sort of memoirs, because it's quite long. But the way he was president and just the way he he really when he had when he had because people would say, like, how do you sleep at night as president? What if you made the wrong decision? And he said, what I try and do is get all the best people in the room, get everyone to speak, even the timid ones, get all of the evidence that we know on the table. And then make a decision so that if there was a, anyone watching us, any logical sane person would follow that all that information, all that data and draw a similar conclusion and then I can sleep well because I did the best I could and I thought that's that's beautiful because you can only do what you can with the information available but the sin is not getting that information out of your you know your advisors your colleagues your team members you know being in a low mood and being and not listening or being you know so it's it's turning up because he's a pretty chilled guy as well you know turning up calm open listen pull all the best things together and yeah of course sometimes it won't work out but you can look back and said hey we did the best we could at the time with the information we had available and I'm proud of what we've, we've tried to achieve. Like for me, that's it. So yeah, we'd love to have him as a mentor. I'm not sure he's available for me, but one day we'll see. No, cool. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time, Marcus, for sharing about the things that you're doing, about the, the Million Tree Pledge and, and uh, making things clear for people and simple to understand the sort of 
the space that we're in at the moment and the choices that we have to make and the implications of those choices going forward. So thank you for that. Is there anything else you feel you need to say in order to call this interview complete? It feels pretty complete, but to anyone listening, you know, on the, on the speaking side of things, it is just just keep going, you know, just keep learning, keep engaging, even when you don't feel like it. And then on the on the planetary side of things, just start start something. Join, uh, you know, sign up to ecology.com. It's six pounds a month to plant some trees. I start talking to people about the climate crisis and just get people's opinions and listen and engage. And I think that that will allow you to be that hummingbird, right? And that will just start a ripple effect. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I love what Marcus and the other Million Tree Pledge founders have started. And it shows that if you think big and come together, anything is possible. I hope that this has given you insight into the peril we're putting our children in and the inspiration to do something to pull us back from the cliff edge. It is possible. Do go and check out the Million Tree Pledge site and see how you can get involved. And if you're up for doing something together in a group, let me know because I want to get involved too. Also, do go and say hi to Marcus on LinkedIn if you were impacted by this show and know that he'd love to hear from you. Also, don't forget to visit saraharcher.co.uk slash nail your talk if improving your speaking or getting a signature talk is on the agenda for you in 2023. Thank you so much again for joining me. I'll be back again next week. If you're new to the show and you liked it, please subscribe. And if you're a regular listener and you haven't yet left a rating or review, then do go and do that over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. Really appreciate it. I read everyone and it really helps other people to find the show and help their speaking include too. And in the meantime, until next time, you know the drill. Go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. One of the things that I teach you on my masterclass has been a game changer for lots of people. The trouble is that we're often too close to our thing to present it in the way our audience needs to see it and hear it to get the results that we want. That's where this powerful live interactive masterclass comes in. I'm going to be taking you through my proven six-step heart map blueprint for creating powerful authentic talks and content using stories that connect with your audience and get them into action here's some feedback from previous attendees definitely a value-packed two hours for anyone wanting to engage with their audience well worth signing up for sarah's masterclass if you want to make your content connect with your audience recommend it massively best two hours i've spent all year i know your time is precious That's why I guarantee that if you don't leave this masterclass knowing exactly what you need to include in your next talk to get more engagement and sales, then I require you to ask for your money back. Grab your space to work with me on your talk at the next masterclass over at saraharcher.co.uk slash masterclass.